Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Now, I'll bet uh, uh, many of you, maybe most of you, have heard the phrase, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And some of you are like, oh yeah, I've heard that, I know that. And some of you might know where that comes from. That's the opening line of Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Well, we're in this series looking through the book of Revelation, and we're looking at this future tribulation period leading up to the second coming of Jesus, and it could be best be characterized by this opening line of Dickens' book. It will be a period of time in the future that it will be the worst of times, the worst time in human history. But at the same time, it could be said that it will be the best of times in human history. It will be the worst time physically and in some ways spiritually, but it'll also be the best of times spiritually. There's going to be great tribulation, but there's also going to be great salvation. It'll be a time of immense trouble, but it's also going to be a time when we are going to experience an unprecedented worldwide revival as people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and are saved on a global scale. One commentator says it this way. He says, it will be the greatest movement of God's saving power the world will ever see. In Revelation chapter 7, where we are today, you can open your Bibles or your version app and go there now. Revelation chapter 7 speaks of this great movement of God's saving power, greater than the world has ever seen. So what I want to look at is, first of all, see some incredible good news, some incredibly good news. Good news in the midst of all the bad news that we've already been looking at and will be looking at in the future. So to set this up, we want to look at the last verse of Revelation chapter 6. And it says this, verse 17. It says, For the great wrath of Jesus, for the great day of Jesus' wrath has come. And we've been talking about that, and we kind of understand that a little bit. And so who is able to stand? The great day of Jesus' wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Chapter 7 is giving us the insight, and it's answering that question, who is able to stand in the midst of the bad news, in the midst of God's wrath. Now, I've been giving you tips um, uh, each week and and just kind of to help you understand Revelation. So let me kind of pause for a minute, give you another tip, and kind of understand what we're looking at today. Um, Throughout Revelation, there are patterns and, and we, we've talked about some of those patterns. We'll talk about more in the future. But one of the patterns we see here is that, that you, God will reveal or show to John the apostle, bad news, bad news, bad news. And then there'll be a pause. There'll be a pause from that heartbreaking news, how awful it is. And God will pause and you'll have a moment. And that's what chapter 7 is. It's, it's a pause in the middle of all the bad news that we've seen up to chapter 6, or in chapter 6. That as chapter 6 is happening, concurrently you have chapter 7. And then there'll be uh, bad news again, bad news, and then there'll be another pause, and bad news and bad news, and then another pause. We see that pattern throughout Revelation. Here's a way that I think can help you think about that. At least it helps me. Um, let's just say you wanted to write a book about World War II. You're like, okay, well, what am I going to write about? There's so much to talk about. How do I do that? How do I accomplish that? And you say, well, uh, I'm going to want to write about what happened in the, you know, the European battles, the, the European theater. I'm going to want to write about the, the Pacific theater. I'm going to want to write about the African theater. So how do you do that? 
Well, it's likely you might do something like this. You'll start talking about the European theater, and you have a few chapters talking about that. And then what will you do? You'll probably pause and take a chapter or two and then talk about the, the, uh, uh, the Pacific theater or the, or the African theater. And then you pause from that and go back to another one. That's kind of what happens in Revelation. You have events that are happening simultaneously, but you pause in the midst of those to kind of go back and say, hey, this is happening. So some say Revelation chapter 7 is not just a pause and what's happening in chapter 6. It's actually what's happening throughout the book of Revelation. So either way you take it, it, the idea is it's a pause in kind of the action that we've been seeing and the bad news that we've been seeing throughout uh, in Revelation so far. And the question is asked, who is able to stand in the midst of all this wrath? And so chapter 7, we're introduced um, to two groups of people who are able to stand. Now I want to keep in mind that back in chapter 6, the fifth seal, it, it talked about people who had come to Christ and had given their life to Christ, but then yet they were killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they're wearing white, white robes and they're before the throne of God. And that lets us know, people are getting saved during this tribulation period. People are coming to Christ during this terrible, awful period of time. This is the good news in the midst of the terrible news that is the tribulation. Salvation comes to many. And as we saw last week, uh, the tribulation, it's bad. Or actually, it was two weeks ago. As we said, it's really bad, and, and, and it's really bad news. There's a lot of bad news, and Jesus talks about it. The prophets talk about it. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, they talk about how awful it is, that it's the worst time in history. And we saw in chapter 6 that someone's going to come upon the scene, and he's going to promise peace. And so there is going to be this temporary peace and yet he will break that peace in the middle of this tribulation period, and that will be followed by a time of terrible war and famine and death. And as bad as that first period of time of the tribulation was, Jesus says, man, that's just the beginning of sorrows. And you start moving forward in Revelation, and you see in chapter 9, you see these trumpet judgments, and it's going to get worse. And then in chapter 16, you're going to see these bold judgments, and it's going to get worse and worse. And so John understands there's smoke and there's fire and he's seen it and there's heat and there's lightning and there's darkness and there's beasts and there's falling stars and so much tragedy. One bad thing taking place after another. It's really God's divine reckoning upon the world. It lets us know he's in charge of the nations and he's in charge of nature. But in the midst of God's divine reckoning, in the midst of all that bad news, there's good news. The tribulation is also a period of time where there's spiritual awakening. There's spiritual revival. There's, there's an unprecedented global revival on a scale never seen before. And you need to understand that that really ultimately is the heart of God. Think about this. As a holy God, God must judge. Tribulation period. He must judge. But the heart of God is to save. As a holy God, God must judge. But because of God's heart, God will save. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone. Everybody say everyone. Everyone, everyone to come to repentance. So that's God's heart. 
God's great desire is to reach out to people, even in the worst of their times. That's God's heart for you. He cares for you and he loves you even in the worst of times that you may be going through. That's his mercy, that's his grace, that's his long-suffering. And then Paul writes to Timothy, and he says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, God wants all people to be saved. Say the word all. He wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God has for us. That's what God wants for us. Now, the question might become for some of you as you think about, we talked a few weeks ago about this idea of of a rapture where God takes up the church before this tribulation period kicks off. Some believe it's in the beginning of the tribulation, some in the middle, some at the end. But let's say it happens at the beginning. How in the world are people going to be saved then? How is there going to be good news in the midst of the bad news? I mean, the church is gone. Who's going to preach the gospel? Where's that going to come from? Well, Revelation answers that question. First, it tells us in Revelation chapter 11 that there's going to be two witnesses preaching the gospel, that they're going to come to Jerusalem, and, and they are going to preach in the word of God. And not only that, but they're also going to be doing incredible miracles, and salvation will come to people. They're going to clearly get people's attention. The scripture says that even uh, people throughout the world are going to know about them and their message. So there's going to be two witnesses in, in Jerusalem doing miracles and preaching the gospel. Next, people will also hear the gospel from 144,000 specific people, Jewish, we'll call them Jewish evangelists. Revelation chapter 7 verse 4 says, I heard a number of those who were sealed. Everybody say the word sealed. Let's say I have this side of the room say sealed. Say sealed. Okay, just make sure you guys are with me. 144,000 that are sealed. Sealed from what? And we'll talk about that in a minute. From all the tribes of Israel. And whether the number is literal or figurative, Here's what we know, that there's a group of people who will be preaching the gospel. And then a third group, finally, there's a third. There's going to be an angel that's flying around the earth preaching the gospel to the whole world. Revelation chapter 14 says, I saw another another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So God's message of salvation God's good news will be delivered to the entire planet. People will have the opportunity to be saved, even in the midst of all the bad news and all the tragedy that this tribulation brings. So that's the first amazing discovery that we have in Revelation chapter 7. But secondly, and we've already alluded to this, the secondly we learn in chapter 7 is that God's protection is upon a specific group of people, upon God's people. So let's pick this up, Revelation chapter 7. Um, you can go on your phones or the U-version Bi- to the U-Version Bible app or even in a physical Bible. We'll look at verse 1, and it says this. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, and he said, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees, until we put a seal. Everybody say seal. Until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. 
Now, if we take this literal, and some do and some don't, but if we take this literal, it tells us there's 144 Jewish people who are sealed, saved, and protected. You see that in the next couple of verses of who they are in verses 5 through 8. But verses 3 and 4 of Revelation says, what does it say about them? It says they're sealed. We talked about being sealed the first week we started this series off. And, and the idea of if we're sealed, then that means that, that we have God's, it means ownership. And we talked a lot about that, but it also means something else. It means protection. And so God's seal on these people is his declaration that they belong to him, that he will protect them during these horrible times. And so we have these specific 144,000 people, set-apart Jewish people who are redeemed, saved, and sealed during this tribulation period. Now, if you look through Scripture, you, un- you understand there's examples of people who are sealed from, from judgments of God. For example, you can go back into the Old Testament and you see that God sealed, when, when the great flood came, God sealed Noah and his family in the ark and he saved them. That God sealed the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, just prior to leaving Egypt. Some of you might know that story that God told the Israelites, I want you to take some blood, the blood of a lamb, and I want you to spread that over the doorpost of your house. And by doing that, you are being sealed. And so when the, the, uh, the avenging angel comes, it will pass over your house because you're sealed, and it will not take your firstborn child. And so that blood was their seal when God later judged the city of Jericho. God used a person named Rahab, who was part of that city, and and she welcomed some of the Jewish spies into her home. And so she she had faith, a faith in God, and because of that, uh, she was told, take a scarlet thread and hang that out her window, that that was her seal, that God's judgment would not come upon her or her family, that her and her family would be saved. And so when the Israelites attacked the city, She and her family were saved. God sealed her and her family. We also have the example from Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4, it's the closest uh, uh, like direct example to Revelation chapter 7. And God tells us in that passage that an angelic servant went throughout Jerusalem and he was the mark with ink on the foreheads of those who had a heart of repentance. Those who recognized that the city of Jerusalem, the inhabitants, were caught up in sin. And God sent an angel to destroy. And those who had a heart of repentance, God sealed them and said, I'll spare you from the judgment. So we see that when God seals somebody, God protects them. Now why would God seal, save, and protect 144,000 Jewish people, whether literal or figurative, this group of Jewish people, Why would he do that? Well, God has a special place in his heart, and there's a special place in God's prophetic calendar and plan for the Jewish people. And I just think about that. Three-quarters of our Bible, you know, is about the Jewish nation, the Jewish race. Most every author in Scripture is Jewish, right? The 12 apostles were Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. The first church in Jerusalem was, was comprised of Jewish people. The prophetic calendar given to Daniel by the angel was all about God, what God was going to do with Jerusalem and the Jewish nation in the last days. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 9. He said, the Jewish people are God's people. 
He made them his children and revealed his glory to them. He made his covenants with them and he gave them the law. They have the true worship. They've received God's promises. They are descended from the famous Hebrew ancestors. And Christ as a human being belongs to their race. You see, one of the big purposes of the tribulation period is that God is using it to prepare the nation of Israel collectively as a nation to finally receive Jesus as their Messiah. That's why the the tribulation period in Jeremiah chapter 30 is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's about the nation of Israel. As a nation, they didn't receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior the first time that Jesus came. It tells us in John chapter 1, he came to his own people and they rejected him. And Paul said in Romans chapter 11, because they collectively as a nation, doesn't mean some didn't give their life to Christ, but because they as a nation rejected Jesus, Paul said this in Romans chapter 11, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Every time I go to Israel and we go on tours and I always have people on our buses who cannot believe that these Jewish tour guides, um, the the knowledge they have of the scriptures and of Jesus, and and they're always like, why isn't this person a Christian? I mean, seriously, those of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but you would agree what they say and preach to us is better than any sermon you've heard at LifePoint. Don't say amen. Uh, (laughs) But I mean, it's incredible. And we're like, how are they not Christians? And I always think about Romans 11, that there's this blindness in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we're going to talk about that fullness. Because during the time of the Gentiles, Daniel talks a lot about it, during that period of time, God's focus, since the Jewish people rejected him as a nation, God's focus and the way God works his plan is through his church. And God uses the church to reach both Jews and non-Jews. But when that fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when that time ha- is, is wrapped up, then God returns or refocuses his attention on his people, the nation of Israel. And God will work in them and through them. And so during the tribulation period of time, as the church has been taken out and out of the scene, God's going to focus on the Jewish people. And he's going to do that through the preaching of these 144,000 Jewish people who are saved, sealed, and given their life to Jesus. And then the scripture says the nation of Israel as a result will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will turn to Jesus. I want you to think about it this way. In, um, In Acts chapter 17, it gives us this incredible passage. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. And we learn and discover that that God used 12 apostles of Jesus to go spread the gospel. And in Acts 17, it said this. It said, they turned the world upside down. And I just love that image. And, I, man, I want that to be said of it. Man, we turned the world upside down for Jesus. Twelve guys. Can you imagine what 144,000 of those type of individuals sharing with passion the gospel of Jesus Christ to give you just a little bit of an idea of what it could be like, I'd encourage you to check out, go on YouTube and do this. Type in the phrase, I met the Messiah. Just type that in. And you might want to pull your phones out in a second. I'll give you some links here uh, that you can just take pictures of and go check these out. And, and they're testimonies of Jewish people 
who have given their life and believe in Jesus as their Messiah. This one guy, he was so clear and so compelling. He has like 3.2 million views. And and again, I'll encourage you to check it out. We'll throw it up there on the screen. Take a picture of this or write it real fast. Um, You can just type those those words in. And it's just fascinating. But the one that was the most fascinating to me was another young Jewish guy, um, probably in his, you know, maybe teens, but I think he was in his 20s. At least he looked that way. And, And he was in Jerusalem. And he was using Isaiah chapter 53 to share Jesus Christ with his Jewish brothers and sisters and try to lead them to Jesus Christ. I got to tell you, 3.4 million views, probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And as I'm watching that and listening to that, literally like my face got flushed, like I was almost in tears. Like, oh my goodness. And I think about that that's happening now, but imagine in the future people like that with that zeal and that passion for Jesus, 144,000 of them saved, sealed, and protected, and passionately preaching the gospel. And so we see during the tribulation period that God's protection are going to be upon this group of people. But finally, we see in chapter 7 that during the tribulation period, not only are are Jewish people going to be saved, the nation of Israel but God's going to save a great multitude of non-Jewish people. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, there before me was a great multitude that no one can count. When it says that no one can count, it simply just means that one guy, John's standing there, he's like, uh, one, two, three, four, five, five million. You know, like it's kind of like, oh, I can't do this. I, there's too many. There's so many. The multitude is so great. And notice where they're from, this great multitude. Verse 9, they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Millions upon millions upon millions of people from the entire planet, from every, every culture, race, language, and you notice there that they're wearing white robes, and it reminds me of those back in chapter 6 who were wearing white robes, the group of martyrs who were under the throne, crying out to God after the fifth seal in chapter 6. And these ones are wearing the same thing, white robes, just like them. And then it went on in verse verse 11 and said, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their face before the throne and worshipped. I want everybody to say worshipped. They worship. Room temperature before the throne of God is worship. And so they worship God saying amen and praise praise and glory and wisdom and honor and thanks and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders said to me, John the apostle, said, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And John's like, hey, you're the one who brought me up here. I don't know who they are. You tell me, sir. You tell me. I don't know, but you know. In other words, John's saying, oh, I can tell you who they are. They're not the church. They're not the church because I know who they are. You showed that to me before in the previous chapters. So this group that I'm seeing now, these multitudes, they're clearly not the church. It's a different group of people. And so John says, you tell me who they are. And so the elder said this. He said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
White in the blood of the Lamb, you look at that and you think, okay, and the martyrs in the previous chapter, and you read that, white in the blood of the Lamb, and you think, okay, martyrdom, salvation language, blood of the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So these are the people who are saved during the tribulation period, but the tribulation period goes on, and there's just these judgments and the persecution from the Antichrist, and these people... A great multitude of people are going to give their life to Christ. And yet, what's going to happen to them? They're going to die. Many of them are going to die. Most of them are going to die in the tribulation period of time because they're going to be martyred, persecuted. And now that they're in heaven before the throne of God, it's a different life for them than what they were experiencing during the tribulation period. The awful effects of that are now gone for them, and now they have this new time for their lives. And notice what it says about them, now that they have died in Christ and in faith. It says, verse 16, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, what does all that mean? It's pretty loaded language as you go through the book of Revelation because you will understand that there will be men and women of faith who will have hungered, possibly even hungered to the point of starvation and dying. Revelation chapter 13 talks about this, that people will be required to have what we would call the mark of the beast. And, and they will be required to have that in order to buy, sell, or trade. And so there's going to be people, most likely, who literally, because they can't buy social trade, they can't get any food, they will literally die from starvation for their faith. But now they're in heaven, they'll never hunger again. There's going to be these martyrs who, who will be in heaven, who they're never going, to, never going to thirst again. Because during the tribulation period, as God pours out his wrath and judgments upon the earth, that, that much of the world's water sources and will be destroyed. And so now they're in heaven and they'll no longer thirst like they thirst on earth. Not only that, but it also tells us that they won't be scorched anymore. What we discover in Revelation chapter 16, that part of the judgments is that the sun will, will scorch people on earth in, a, in an unprecedented matter, a whole lot hotter than the 116 we experienced this week, right? Praise God for, last night I was watching Cali's soccer game, it was 40 degrees cooler last night than it was the day before, man, it was crazy, I was freezing, but I'll take that right now. So they were scorched, but now in heaven, the agony they experienced is all over, in fact, God said, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye, that you hung in there, in the midst of your tribulation, you remained faithful to the life that God has called you to. And that's God's message for you and I. God calls us to remain faithful. God calls us through the Apostle Paul to run the race that's marked out before us. And when we do that and when we remain faithful, there is in store for us a crown of righteousness. And God will never hunger again, will never thirst again. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God invites you, calls you to faithfulness to remain faithful and true to him and his will and his calling in your life. Revelation chapter 7. It's an incredible chapter giving us a glimpse into a worldwide revival. Jewish people saved on a global scale as they finally give their life to Christ. 
non-Jewish people, so many that you can't even count them. They give their life to Christ, and they too will be saved. Jesus, in talking about this period of time, said in Matthew chapter 24, he said the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. How? The 144th Jewish evangelist? How? The, the angel that flies around the earth preaching the gospel? How? The two witnesses in Jerusalem. Everybody on earth will have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. The kingdom will be preached, Jesus said, throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Jesus says in the midst of the mayhem, the chaos, the persecution, the death, the gospel will have a worldwide impact an unprecedented worldwide revival. And then the end will come. Man, chapter 7 of Revelation, this pause, what an encouragement. What a blessing to know that when the world experiences its greatest mess, they will still at the same time be experiencing the greatest message. And when I think about that, that lets me know something. That, that I serve and follow a God who can be trusted. That I serve and follow, and you serve and follow a God, He loves you so much that in the midst of your mess or the mess that surrounds you, that God has a message for you of salvation, of hope, of healing, of restoration, of reconciliation. In your mess, God redeems. In your mess, his message to you is he loves you, he cares for you, he draws alongside of you, and he will seal you, and he will protect you. Doesn't mean he'll protect you from all the physical harm that's going to come our way, but he will protect you, and he will give you his peace that transcends all understanding. He will give you a hope for the future that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and we will no longer be in pain, and we will no longer suffer, we will no longer hunger, and we will no longer thirst. Man, if you don't learn anything from Revelation chapter 7, at least learn this, that even in the worst of times, that there can be the best of times. What are you going through right now? Maybe for some of you, you're like, man, this is the worst of times. God says, why don't you turn that over to me? Why don't you give that to me? And I want to help you experience, even in the midst of your chaos, I want you to be able to experience the best of times. And that's what God has for us. Let God transform this season from the worst of times to the best of times, the best season in your life. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.